So we are uh, back in Jude, and we are finishing up tonight. We'll see. No, we will. We'll be finishing up. It, thank you for uh, coming and, and walking through this, uh, this letter with me. This has been a fun journey. Um, it, it, I, I, I'm just overwhelmed at, at how a, a letter of 25 verses can be so rich as we've been running all over the Old Testament uh, to follow Jude's line of thinking. So this has just been a, a joy for me. Well, um, what I'd like you to do now, we're going to read uh, the section I'll be preaching on tonight. We're going to be in verses 17 through 25 of Jude. Again, it's the last, second to last book in your Bible. So uh, as we read that, I'd love you to stand. So go ahead and stand, and we'll be starting in verse 17 of Jude. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the cold air outside. Thank you for the warmth we have inside and the warmth of gathering with God's people, our brothers and sisters. And Lord, thank you for, for this word, which is a fire. And I pray that this word would just dig into our hearts and just convict of, of those things needing conviction, that they, it would encourage us in, in ways that we need encouraging, and Lord, that it would continue this process of transformation, of renewal, of sanctification that you've begun in us, and Lord, I pray that uh, we, would, we would hear Jude's exhortation to us tonight, uh, Lord, all, all to your glory all to the building of your kingdom and the strengthening of your saints. So, Lord, I thank you for what we are about to go through now. And, uh, Lord, we pray for your insight, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, um, Satan has always been on the attack against God, his plans, his people. He, he enticed from the very beginning, he enticed our, our parents in the garden, right? And we see throughout Scripture, he has been on a war against God and his plans. We've, we even saw that uh, he, he came against our Savior himself when he was out in the wilderness in, in tempting Jesus. He's after the church. We can't be naive to this. We've been warned. Jesus said to watch out for false teachers, these minions of Satan. Indeed, when he was here on earth, who, who, who got the, the most strident of his accusations and his woes? It wasn't just sinners. It was specifically the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, evangelists from hell. That's what you look in Matthew chapter 23. He has scathing language for these religious leaders because they were leading people away from God leading people to hell. It's so we've been warned, and we still need to, to understand that we have to watch out for false teachers. Again, we spent a lot of time looking at, over the last few weeks at, at, at the descriptions that Jude just lays out for us from the Old Testament. He, he pulls no punches. He uses very strong language to identify, to characterize, to highlight and emphasize who these frauds are. Remember, he's not talking about uh, people outside the church attacking the church. Jude's specific goal is to highlight the sick shepherds within the church. 
Men who have risen within the church, gaining people's trust, and yet they're actually spies. He says they've infiltrated in verse 4. He said it right from the start. We've got to contend earnestly for the faith because Satan has been at war with the church and he continues to be. So this letter, though, written 2,000 years ago is very, very much relevant for today because the attacks still come. And folks, we have a, a job to do within this church to guard the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to contend for the faith, to be on the alert, do we not? And just because I'm up here in a pulpit doesn't mean you should just trust me blindly, should you? should be like the Bereans in Acts who, who searched the scriptures after hearing from the apostle Paul, yet they still searched the scriptures first, and he commended them for it. We have to take seriously Jesus' warning. And what did he say? You'd notice them by their fruit. When he says fruit, what were the things that he's been highlighting? Again, we're smaller groups. I'm going to ask you, for those who have been here, what does he highlight about the fruit of the false teachers? Got to think back. Got to look. You got the passage right there. I want feedback now. They're clouds without rain. They have, they promise, you know, nourishment to an agricultural soil. Here comes the rain. Oh, it's great. And then they go right on past. So they're empty. They're, they're, they, you know, people without rain, they, there's famine. There's, they starve, right? Okay, so that's one of their fruit. What's that? They're hidden reefs in your love feasts, right? They, they cause shipwreck of people's faith. What else? Twice dead. Okay, you guys are looking right at the last few verses. You're right. That's exactly what they are. They're twice dead because they're trees that don't bear fruit. We need fruit to eat to survive. But go back even further. What does he say about them? Because that's what they are as teachers. What? Yeah, they come in with evil motives. They came in from the very beginning when they get into the bodies. They had evil motives from the beginning because they're devoid of the spirit. They're worldly. They're ungodly. They make bold claims. They claim to have authority, yet they have none. If you look through that, and, and, and one of the things you can notice about them is they have false teaching, doesn't line up with scripture. Matter of fact, what is their source of authority? If you remember, there was one thing that was a big, like, whoa, it's a red flag. Their source was their own dreams. Oh, this is what God told me, right? If it's not from the pages of scripture, what are we to do with that? Reject it. That's not guidance for the body. We have God's revealed will right here. Okay, There's a lot here in our Bibles. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So, so they're the fruit of their teaching, it's not tied to Scripture. It's an error. What else? It's not just their teaching, but also something else. He keeps highlighting about them. They reject authority, right? They're unsubmissive. They make claims for their own authority. They're not humble. Now we're ahead. There's another thing, too. He keeps, in a lot of the Old Testament examples, there was always something that was associated with these false teachers. They deny, okay, they deny, it kind of goes along the same line. They deny, deny Christ, they deny his authority, they claim their own authority. I'm going to fast forward for you. Sexual immorality and greed for gain. Those were two huge signs. Balaam, why did he, why was he brought up? Well, he, he came down, he, made, was, he was hired to give a false prophecy against Israel to curse them. God wouldn't let him, but yet then he found another way to sidetrack and to lead the, the children of Israel astray. How did he do that? He got the women of Midian to seduce the men of Israel and to have to, you know, enter into idolatry and sexual immorality. And that's just one of the examples all the way through. This is all over this section. The signs of these false teachers are never just, hey, I wonder about their teaching. No, it's also look at their character, the character of their lives. Look at both. That's why we need to know each other. That's why this body is supposed to be brothers and sisters, not not attendants. We're we're members of the church, but we are members of the body of Christ. We're members, it says in Ephesians 4.26, we're members of one another, or 4.25. Right? Laying aside all falsehoods, speak truth to, to one another, for we are members of one another. We belong to each other. We need to know each other. We need to know each other's lives so we can help each other. But a thing about false teachers, look at their lives. Watch out for their teaching. Watch out for their lives. So watch out. We, ha- we can't be naive. We've been warned. And it's not just that they're bad. They're going to lead people astray. Folks, we're not talking about, oh, they're going to tell them to buy the wrong car. What's at stake here? 
salvation, eternity, the gospel. Again, this little letter is so packed. I mean, that's when I first was asked, you know, hey, Chris, when you want to preach on it? I said, oh, I'll pick, you know, I've got a few weeks. I'll just pick Jude. <laughs> I was also do it for three weeks. And even this last lesson or this last sermon tonight could easily go two to three weeks. But, but it's just full. There's so much here in God's word to warn us, to real, to, because it's, it's what at stake is what, what matters so much here. We can't be naive. We have to be alert. We have to be vigilant to spot fakes and confront them. And then we find that we have to warn them. If you notice this letter, this is written to the false teachers, this middle section. Hey, if you're a false teacher and you read this, what what should be coming to your mind? Uh, Because what did he say? Did he just say what they did? What else did he highlight about their end? severe condemnation and eternal judgment. Remember, he constantly, all the way through, he's bringing up what happened to these apostates of the past. It wasn't just what they did, it's where they ended up. All the way through, they're condemned and they're given woes and they're given eternal judgment. So if you're a false teacher, this is a huge warning. And we are, if we're going to confront somebody who's a false teacher... We, we have to give them that chance to do what? Repent. Repent. By the way, did any of these Pharisees that Jesus was so strongly set against as far as his confrontation, these six shepherds who were leading Israel straight, did any of them come, repent? Nicodemus? Joseph of Arimathea? Paul, hello, who wrote most of the New Testament? It does say in Acts, in Acts, we find out there was a large number of the Pharisees who converted that were part of the church. Now, they, there are some problems because of that, but that's the church worked through. But here's the deal. We, no one is beyond the scope of God's reach. We don't know who God's going to convert. So even with a false teacher, we confront them. We, we isolate them from teaching in the church for sure, but they need a chance to repent. If somebody, Matthew 18, everyone think about Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. How many of you know what that passage is generally about? Church. Okay, and add the extra word. Church discipline and restoration. Somebody sins against you, you're supposed to go to them privately, confront them in their sin. Now, confrontation, we hear that word and we're like, ouch. No, the Bible just means to go and say, here, here's something. Because in Galatians, it tells us the purpose is to restore. That word restore, by the way, is also used in medical terms of resetting a broken bone. Or mending your fishing nets. Where it's, it's messed up and you need to fix it. Right? A broken bone, when it's restored, how long does it take to be whole again? It takes time. That should tell us about what the process of restoration looks like, right? I bring all that up is that, look, when you walk through that whole church discipline step by step, the first step is go to them privately, give them time to repent, and if they do repent, hey, praise God, you've won a brother, it says in Matthew eighteen fifteen. If they don't, it says you're supposed to go with two or three witnesses because they're there to see if your confrontation is legit, because it might be over a preference thing, or you might just have an agenda, and they might call you out. But if it is indeed a sin, these two or three witnesses act as witnesses, and that is the second step of, rest, of, of discipline. And if the person doesn't repent after a given amount of time, then what happens? It says, tell it to the church. Then the church confronts. Come back to the Lord. Forsake your sin. There's the, the church gets involved. And if they don't after that, what happens then? It says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. You're a Jew. Jesus was talking to Jews. What does that mean? He was using a phrase that would tell them, treat them as an unbeliever. It says, cast them out of the church. We see this practice. Paul wanted the church to practice the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a man there who was having an affair with his stepmom. And he confronts the church. Paul does. He writes a letter to the church. What in the world are you doing having this in your church? The Gentiles think this is disgusting. Turn him over. Cast him out of the church. Turn him over to Satan. Get him out of the church. He's polluting the body. But what was the whole point? It says that, that maybe in the end he might be saved. 
There's even there a chance for him to be restored. And then we see in 2 Corinthians, he actually has to tell the Corinthians, hey, let him back in, he's repented. Pretty cool. Again, the whole reason I bring this up is we're talking about false teachers. The whole point is always, always to get them to come back to God, to warn them, to isolate them. Hey, they got to be done teaching, but to give them a chance to come back to God. Because at the end of the Matthew 18 process, when they've been, this person has been cast out of the church, what do they get from the church? The cold shoulder? What? They're, they're non-believers, so what do you do? You go to them with the gospel. You keep loving them. They're a friend. Jesus was a friend of sinners. See, we, we, it's, it's so, I know this is so, we think when somebody's outside, oh, we give them, the, give them our backs, right? Now, they're not allowed back in the church until there's repentance, but still, we still have to be reaching out with the gospel. Maybe God will, will save them. Again, what was Paul? He was a Pharisee. What else about Paul? Oh, he hated the church. He hated Jesus. Oh, what else about Paul? Oh, he, he led the first stoning of a Christian. He was the ringleader of stoning Stephen. And then, what else would we see him again in Acts chapter 9? He's the one who's going up to Damascus. He's going out of Israel to go after Christians, to arrest them and torture them. In my kind of think, if I was just a man, what would I think about his chances of being saved? From a human perspective, bonk. He's the worst of the worst. And what does God do? Oh, He's now going to be the biggest missionary of all time, the greatest writer of scripture, the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planter. We, we got to give God some more credit than that, don't we? Okay. All, okay, there we go. <laughs> Went way off my notes. But I, I want us to see this, is that false teachers, this purpose of this really is to warn them as well, to turn and repent. But, but we have to understand here, there's an urgency to this letter, and we've talked about it. The gospel is at stake. Every generation has to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's out of verse 3. We have to. Because if we don't do our job, what's going to happen to the generation coming up? Now, we have the other side of the picture from a human perspective, but we have God's perspective. What did Jesus say about his church? The gates of hell will not prevail. He's going to build his church. It's never going to stop. But if we don't do our job here, the gospel might die here. Has it happened around the world like that? Well, look at Europe. Former churches are now bars. It's very atheistic in Europe in parts. Where the Reformation happened, there's a dearth of the gospel. So we, we have to understand that, that we have a responsibility, not just a pastor in a pulpit. Hey, I, I, my, my role, I get to feed the flock. Yes, I do. And I get to equip you. But here's the deal. You have a far greater reach. Because when people come to the church, mainly it's believers. But the people who need to hear the gospel are the people you reach. The children who need to see and learn the gospel, yeah, they can learn at church, but guess who they learn best from? Mom and dad. So mom and dad, you've got to uphold the gospel. We all have a role to play. We do. It's urgent. It's a, such an urgent thing. So, okay, there's, that's all the, the buildup to this, right? So I want us to, to kind of remember where we've been in Jude real quick. We have visitors here tonight, so kind of catch you up where we've been in Jude. Um, so, by the way, tonight's section, there's a big switch because verses 5 through 16 has all been directed about false teachers. It's been pretty harsh. There's no doubt. Harsh language. But now he switches to talking to the beloved. Who are the beloved? The believers, right? So he does switch gears here a little bit. But before we get there, let's look real quickly. First of all, in verses 1 and 2 of Jude, he's reassuring the believers Hey, here's who it's from. It's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. And he encourages them. They're called of God. They're beloved of God and kept by God. Man, that's, those are just three rich words. And then he goes on to rally them to protect the faith against false teachers in verses 3 and 4. He's warning them about the wolves and sheep's clothing, those from within the body, trusted men within the church, the same ones that Paul 
warned the Ephesian elders about, the leaders of the Ephesian church. He says, watch out that from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's Acts 20, verse 30. These are the men who are the infiltrators, the spies with evil motives. Their confession of faith, though they make it, is hollow. It's empty. The corruption of their life at first is hidden, but it, will, it eventually reveals itself. So that's, that's verses 3 and 4. He rallies the troops, protect the faith. Then in verses 5 through 16, like I highlighted, he says, recognize them. He points out who these false teachers are. He wants true believers to recognize them and to understand because here's the deal. When someone carries the title elder or pastor and they're in the pulpit, what, what do your kids call me? What do your kids call me? Pastor Chris, I have a title. And there's, some, there's honor that goes with it, and I appreciate that. But here's the deal. When someone in the position of authority starts to go astray, you know what people generally do at first? Huh. I, I, I don't, I've never heard that. Well, maybe I need to rethink what I've believed before. It's called the power of the pulpit to lead people astray. And so when Jude is going through to characterize all, just to give the, you know, the list of all these evil characters from the Old Testament, he's trying to bolster the church, believers. Hey, this is what they are. Don't let their authority, don't let their, their claims of, of, of having all this authority over the angelic realms. Remember, that's one of their things. They could boast, oh, you know, we could say this and, and all that. And that's why he's, you know, uh, uh, Jude keeps bringing up, look, they make arrogant claims, but they're presumptuous claims. They're prideful. Don't listen to them. And so he's trying to encourage the church, look, if you spot a fake, don't be swayed by who they are and the claims they make. If it doesn't match up with Scripture, their teaching, and if their lives are not uh, walking in the ways of godliness, as we see in Scripture, what are you supposed to do? Reject them. So, so much of the middle section is also, it's not just, hey, here's the false teachers, recognize them. It's also, hey, bow up, man up, and if they're there, confront them. It's to give us that, that sense of courage. Do something about it. Verses 5 through 7, we see he, we have the past apostates. In verses uh, 8 through 13, he's looking, he, he focuses on the present actions of these, these false teachers, coupling them with, with these evil cast of characters from the Old Testament. They have corrupt actions, deceitful leadership, and they have a sure condemnation. In verses 14 through 16, he looks at their prophesied future. They have a sure and severe judgment coming. So like I said, in, in verse 17, we have the switch now. He's now he's directing his attention to the believers. And he says, hey, look, you guys need to remain faithful. Persevere in the faith. Remember the warnings, he says. He's, remember the, the warnings that you got from the apostles. Remember, remember, remember. And he says, remain in God's love. Grow in knowing God in his word and grow in that expectation of his coming. And then he says, rescue those who are ensnared. And then he says, rejoice because God is king and the preserver of his people. That's the last section we'll look at. There's four things that we're going to look at tonight, and that's them. So let's join Jude, who warned the Christians then, and he's warning us now, all right? He's, he's not warning now. He's now encouraging and exhorting us. So first of all, remember the warnings in verses 17 to 19. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They, meaning the apostles, said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So again, he uses beloved here. His focus is squarely on those faithful of, verse, uh, of the verses uh, 2 and 3. Those called by God to be his own. Those loved by God as his own. Those kept by God to always be his own. Again, I love that. Called, beloved, and kept. 
Do you know that's, that's true about you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? You're, you're called by him to be his own. You're beloved because you are his own. And, and that word is agapetas. That's your title of the beloved. Isn't that amazing? And then it says that you're kept by him, guarded by him. For what? For what? To worship him, to do his works. But here's the deal. Kept so that you will remain his all the way through the end. See, it's not up to you to maintain your salvation. How did you become saved? Did you choose God? No. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He, by grace, he opens our eyes. He gives us the gift. He chooses us. He opens our eyes so we can choose him back. He gives us the faith so we can believe. Isn't that amazing? But here's the deal. You are saved by his grace, but here's the deal. You're kept by his grace. Because if my salvation, the security of my salvation was up to me, folks, I would be unsaved every day, all the time. But thank the Lord, he preserves us. He keeps us. Isn't that amazing? That's a, it's a cause of praise. So beloved, he switches gears. He's talking to the people of God. He says, remember, this is actually the first command in the letter. He hasn't, even when it says, you know, I urge you to contend. He's not, that's not a command at the very beginning in verse 3. Okay, it's, this is the first command. Remember, bring to mind, recollect, think on again. Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is one of the hints we have that Jude was not one of the apostles. Because we had to figure out, if you remember at the very beginning, which Jude was this. Because there's like nine Judes in the Bible for us to choose from. And we boiled it down to the half-brother of Jesus because he was not one of the apostles. He became a Christian after the resurrection. Okay, so this is one of those hints. But what he says is, remember their predictions, their past warnings. They weren't empty air. They didn't just say it to say things. They said it so that we would know and remember. Don't be lulled into sleep. You know, we're, we're at a, this church. What, what's happening here is there's amazing things happening here. As, as you know, you, there's a merge two years ago, and now there's another merge at the bridge as we've come on board. There's, that's, yes, that doesn't happen. Churches coming together. That does not happen. You always hear about churches splitting right uh see ya no we're coming together and this is a great time in the history of the church and things are developing and growing and we're seeing how new ministries develop and it's an exciting time but don't be lulled to sleep satan is at war with his church he'll there'll be attacks from outside that's that's to be expected but there's gonna be attacks from within uh that maybe that's the lord trying to say something (laughs) <laughs> that, maybe that was the emphasis uh, yes well done <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's our son <laughs> but he says look at listen you know there's they gave these warnings on purpose there's really going to be attacks from within all throughout the church era even even when we look at Jesus when he talks about the tribulation the last the day of the lord this last 7 years he says boy false prophets are going to be all over the place this is one of satan's big big strategies to have those who would lead for, lead people astray from within the church we have to be alert to that and he calls them scoffers and that's not a word i, I generally use so I, I looked up what is a scoffer because this is, again, he's been calling them false prophets, and he's been calling them, and then he, he, at the very end, he calls them something else, scoffer. What's a scoffer? It, it's it's uh, one who shows contempt by mocking, sneering, or scorning. Oh, how do you like those words, sneer? That, that's a word that sounds like it looks like, right? Sneering. Unlike the good man who walks the path of wisdom, the scoffer is a wicked man who follows the path of folly, refusing to listen to the wisdom of others. It's to show one's contempt in derision or mockery. Scoff stresses insolence, disrespect, or incredulity as motivating the derision. Jeer, it's another synonym, it suggests a coarser, more undiscriminating derision. It stresses insulting by contemptuous facial expression, phrasing, or tone of voice. Boy, 
And what is, where, where are these scoffers? In the church. So that should give you a clue. These scoffers, they scoff at God's authority. They scoff at God's leaders. They scoff at godliness. Oh, you don't really have to follow all the things in the Bible. Come on now. That's, you know, that's, that's a little narrow. Come on. They'll, they'll scoff. They'll, they'll deride. And they'll start subtly at first. Because a false teacher doesn't just walk into a church and say, Hello, I'm a false teacher. They don't. They're infiltrating. That's why he uses the word. They're infiltrating the church. It says that they follow ungodly passions. It's because of their ungodly lusts and cravings that, that they are following. It's their habitual thing that they scoff. They have lusts for money, for power, prestige. They want to gain a following. And because it's been all over this letter and several of the examples used, almost all of them, there's been sexual immorality tied to it and even greed. That's, that, that characterizes these people. It says that they, they cause divisions. So if there's a scoffer in the church, usually they're trying to undermine any kind of authority and make fun of, deride certain people and try to gain following. They try to cause divisions, to get people to take sides. What does Ephesians uh, 5 tell us? 5, 1 and 2. It tells us to work hard to maintain the unity of the body, or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. They do the exact opposite. They're, remember, he's calls them, they're devoid of the spirit, and yet the unity of the body is caused by the spirit. So they're fighting the spirit. They're, instead of building up the body, they're trying to destroy the body. They're, they're evil. They cause divisions, creating disunity. Destroying the unity of the body, dividing people, sowing seeds of discord. And as I say this, folks, has that ever happened here in this church? Yes, I've heard about that. There's people in our, when I was Bridgemore Park, there's people who did that at our church. I had to talk to a few. One had to leave. It's natural to be, well, I don't think, I want to do it my way. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. You're not doing, you're not doing music the way I want it. Okay, by the way, music is probably one of the most thing, the things that causes the most division in the church because it's one of preference. It really is. And when I get mad when people start saying, oh, well, the music, oh, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, well, it's all, it's very, very much in the church. Oh, again, I don't, that's not my point here, but to look, watch out for people who cause divisions, these scoffers. It says that they're worldly, they're not godly, they're not holy. They're devoid of the spirit. They're not of the people of God. They're destroyers. They make bold claims. There's no humility. What is the, one of the greatest ingredients to unity in the body, according to Philippians chapter 2? The whole chapter is about unity. And the key ingredient? Humility. Considering others as better than yourselves. Looking out for their needs, not just your own. And then the key example he gives right away is Jesus and the humility he showed. And then he gives Paul. Paul gives him my own. So, hey, I'm just a drink offering poured out on, your, on, your, uh, on the sacrifice of you. My life, I'm just a drink offering. It's whatever God wants to do. If it's poured out and gone, that's all right. Then he gives, he gives Timothy. Timothy, he served on your behalf. Epaphroditus, boy, he went out of He almost died serving you. So it's all about humility. They're worldly, devoid of the spirit, not humble. And he's saying, remember the warnings of the apostles. They warned us about them. So that's just verses uh, 17 through 19. Then he goes in verse 20, he switches gears a little bit. He stops focusing on them altogether and he tells them, hey, remain in the love of God. Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, oh, I love that word again. Want to talk about that word again? No, it's all right. We just remember that. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
Again, he reaffirms their status, but again, we can't miss why he's doing that. He's contrasting them with the false teachers. They are not beloved, are they? They've been called out. They've been, they've been, they've been, it says that they were marked out for condemnation. They're that evil, these false teachers, but yet we're beloved. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's verse 21. That's the command there. And that, key, that word keep is to, means to remain. What does it say in verse 2 about us? We're kept by God, right? What was, the, what was wrong with the angels in verse 6? What did they do? They didn't keep to their proper abode. They didn't stay where God wanted. There, there's the word play on keep is all throughout this letter. Matter of fact, at the very end, who is the one that we, we glorify? It's the one who is able to keep us, Right? says, keep yourselves, remain in the love of God. And what does that mean? Well, look at, look at John 15, 9 through 10. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He's talking to his disciples. Abide in my love. That means remain or dwell. Okay? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you notice the tie? To abide, to remain in the love of God, in the love of Jesus, you have to obey his commandments. To have the love of God, that's, there's a tie that's right there. We have to see the tie between obedience to God's revealed word and abiding and remaining in his love. And, and who's the key example? Jesus said, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So instead of hearing when I say, oh, we got to obey God's word. Here's one red flag that a lot of times goes up. Oh, that's legalism. Well, according to Jesus and his example, it's actually life. And when we obey God's commands, what do we get from God? His love. There's a tie. By the way, when he commands something, is it because he's trying to make life miserable? Let's just talk about that for a second. Because we, as human beings, in our love of independence, our rebellious spirit. How many of you have that, by the way? Everyone raise their hand. You're breathing. That's me too. Our, when we hear the word command, we naturally go, oh, oh it's all about grace. Well, if, if the Christian life was all about grace, as far as living the Christian life, how come there's actually commands in Scripture? Okay? Just so you know, God, the, the life of a Christian, is a, a life of cooperating with the Spirit. He gives us commands, and we're to obey them. We're to do our best to obey them. But the only way we can obey them is by His power that He enables us to do it. But the Holy Spirit, who indwells us to enable us to do it, He's, not, he, he's a gentleman. He, he only works with us as we cooperate. So sanctification, the process of changing and growing as a Christian, is a cooperation process. Okay? So just keep that in mind here. So when we say the call to obedience, I want you to know that we have all sorts of understanding that the Spirit is a part of it. But yet we are commanded to obey. And what does Jesus say about the obedience? Well, that's what he did, so we should follow his example. Oh, and he says, you abide in the Father's love if you keep my commandments. Do you want to abide in the Father's love? I have a simple solution for you. Obey his commandments. Isn't that cool? And it's not legalism. Legalism is when you do it on the outside, but you're not doing it from the heart, and you're doing it to be seen, but not to honor God and please God. Right? And then you start making others do the way that you have to do it. Even in the gray areas where there's choices, you enforce your convictions on them. That becomes legalism. You add rules where there are no rules. Okay. I, I, anyway, so we're there. We see, we see this. Is that to, to remain in his love is, man, just read scripture and where it commands things. It's simple. Do it. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple to understand, is it not? Mark Twain says, it's not, it's not the parts of Scripture that I, that I don't understand that are, are hard. It's the, it's the actual commands that are clear that are hard. You know, I totally brutalized the quote, but that's, that was one of my favorite things. He said, you know, that's actually true. Scripture is clear. And the parts that are a little bit unclear, it, 
okay, you, you can spend your time there, but here's the deal. The parts that are clear, do what you know. Do what you know. Obey it. So let's, he actually gives us three things in this section about how you can remain in his love, okay? So first of all, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's in verse 20. It's called a participle. There's three participles here and one command. The command is remain in the Father's love. And then the three participles give you how that happens. The first one is building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That word is to strengthen your faith. Keep building on what has been started. Rather than their destructive teaching, which is seeking to tear down, build up the faith. What you already know. Get strong by sticking to what you already have. Here's the deal. If you hear new teaching from a pulpit, that's like, I've never heard that before. What should you do right away? Okay, hold on. Hold on. Because here's the deal. We've been at this for 2,000 years. You know, we, have, we, we, we stand on the shoulders of the godly men and women of the past. We're a part of a long change of faithfulness. Do you think the Holy Spirit has waited all this time to reveal basic truths? No. So if we're teaching something new, you should say, hold on. Now, if we're teaching solid truth, maybe using a few different words to help a current culture understand it, okay, maybe. <laughs> but let's check to see if it aligns with Scripture. Okay? So build up what you already have. Suspect any new teaching. You know, Colossians 2.7 says, Be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. There's not new truths coming. We've got the, want the faith once for all delivered to the saints 2,000 years ago. It says in Ephesians 2.20, Paul talking to the Ephesians, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in, him, in whom the whole structure, he's using the, the picture of a building, the temple, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, Hearing some of this, you should think of these false teachers because they want to destroy. They want to do the opposite. They want to introduce false teaching, not the teaching already delivered. They are devoid of the Spirit. They don't want to build the building that's been built by the Spirit. They're fighting against the Spirit. We're to reject them. And it's called the most holy faith, right? The one that's already delivered. And holy, it's not defiled like these false teachers. Again, so many contrasting words in this letter. He says, stick to the faith you already have and reject these ungodly teachers. But it's, this is not all that this means. He says, building up yourselves in the most holy faith. Well, folks, here's the deal. You're supposed to keep growing. You are supposed to keep growing. You and I are supposed to keep growing and getting stronger in the faith, pushing ourselves theologically. Let me read you a passage where the writer of Hebrews says the exact same thing to Christians. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Matter of fact, turn there. <laughs> Hebrews, just a few books before. If you see James, it's just before James. If you see Thessalonians, it go towards Revelation again. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. I'm going to read through 14. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you instead need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What is the word of righteousness? The Bible. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying we need to be growing. I have people tell me, oh, I don't, you know, I just read the Bible. And, you know, when you talk to them, you just realize they just don't do hardly any reading. They just wait for Sundays. And they might do a light devotional, like maybe reading. And I like daily bread. I mean, it's, it helps me think differently. But if that's your only diet, maybe once or twice a week and then a sermon on Sunday... Oh my goodness, that's not enough. How will you spot a false teacher? 
Because false teachers, again, they don't announce themselves. What do they do? They, they start, you know, injecting subtle heresies that build and build over time. And if you don't know the truth, you'll be deceived. You need to be growing. You need to be reading God's word for sure. But you need to be reading some theological works. There's some great books that should be on everybody's reading list at some point. Some of them are harder than others. You should be reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Such a great book. You should be reading Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Oh, my goodness. It's an excellent book. There's several books you should be reading. I should be reading. Right? We always got to be pushing ourselves. And, and if you don't know what to read, talk to me. Talk Well, talk to Lance. Oh, my goodness. You've seen all the books he's read. There's so many good, solid books, but there's also a lot of bad ones, too. So trust, you know, ask someone from a trusted source, but we've got to be growing. We've got to be growing in what we know. We need to move on from the basics. Listen to this, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to grow in the grace and knowledge. Where do we get the knowledge of Jesus Christ? You're holding it to scriptures. We're supposed to be growing in that. He says this. So the first one is building yourselves up in the most holy faith. The second thing is praying in the Holy Spirit. We aren't like those false teachers who are devoid of the Spirit. We have access to the Spirit. We're the Spirit's building. We have access to the greatest power in person through the Spirit, to God. So get to and keep on praying. Talk to God, consistently seeking Him. And that's what we do tonight. For your visitor, we break into prayer in the back there after the sermon. If you're welcome to stay with us. It's, it feels a little awkward because it's not really done in our culture. But we take seriously the call to pray as a body, to pray together. Because we have access to, to God. And he hears us. What does it say in Hebrews 4? Our great high priest beckons us, come to my throne of grace. And there you'll find help in your time of need. You'll find mercy. He calls us, come to me in prayer. Does he already know what we need? Does he know what we're thinking? So who's prayer for, him or for us? Absolutely for us, because it changes us. It makes us dependent. And when we pray like this out loud, it's a little awkward, but you know what it does? It makes me want to be better friends with you. Because Seriously, you took a risk to pray out loud. And I hear your thoughts about God. And I say, oh, that's my brother or my sister. There's something in my spirit that hears your spirit. And there's not, it's not talking about anything weird, but it's true. I hear another Christian praying, and it's like, ah, oh, this is so cool. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just stop there. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does that mean, Abba? It's a term of endearment, Daddy. We are allowed to call the God of the universe that intimate term. He tells us to. Isn't that cool? Praying in the spirit. It says in Ephesians six eighteen, we should be praying at all times. And by the way, six eighteen is the end of the armor of God, is it not? It's the last piece of armor. And listen to what he says. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. What, how many times have you mentioned some form of prayer? I'm holding up. I already held up the answer before I asked it. I'm not very smart. But there you go. Yes, you go. So that's the second thing, praying in the Holy Spirit. The third thing about how we remain in the love of God is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This, this idea of expectancy of the return of the Lord Jesus. It, matter of fact, this, 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 uh, this expectancy, this waiting, is actually a sign of grace operating in your life. Did you know that? Listen, listen to Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. How many are glad for that? Grace of God appeared, right? In verse 11, it says, bringing salvation to all people. Yes, by grace we've been saved. Yes. But here's what else grace does. Listen to verse uh, 12. It says, training us 
to a renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the second thing grace does is help us to change and grow. Verse 12 says that. Verse 13 says waiting. The third thing grace does is helps us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you have an expectancy, a hoping, a waiting for Jesus to return, it's a sign of grace operating in your life. Now, I'm convicted when I say this because I just don't live there all the time. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I said it this morning. And there's times where that just rings in my heart and says, yes. But then I get caught up in my daily life, the things to do, the emails to send, the flocks to organize, the children's ministries to figure out. <laughs> Any of you guys feel like that with your to-do lists, right? But this is one of the signs of God's grace operating in us, that thinking about the return of Christ. This, this thinking about the return of Christ is also a motivation that spurs us on to godly living. Listen to this in 2 Peter 11, or 3, 11 through 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about creation at the end of time. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So he's saying because there's an end coming where all things are going to be dissolved, okay? He says, shouldn't you be living godly and holy lives now? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, he called, Peter called us beloved too, isn't that great? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. An expectant hope helps us to live purified lives now, growing in godliness. So these three things, building yourselves up in the faith, getting into God's word, pushing yourself to grow in understanding and obedience, praying in the spirit, praying individually, praying with God's people, accessing God. <laughs> and then the third thing is that, that expectancy, thinking about his sure return. Those things help you remain in the love of God. But he doesn't stop there. He does address, what about all these people who are straying? In verses 22 and 23, he says, hey, look, rescue the doubting, the deceived, and the defiled. And have mercy, he says in verse 22, on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. What Jude is doing here is that he's highlighting our responsibility to each other, especially those who have been led astray to some degree by false teaching. He says, have wise care, right? You're treating these people differently. To those who doubt, what do you do? Yeah, go and rescue them. To those who are, who are, you know, who probably have stumbled and they're not just doubting, they're kind of following these false teachers. What does he say? Well, go and rescue them, snatch them out of the fire, right? And then he says, for those who, who are defiled, right? To others, show mercy with fear. These are the ones who are really in it. This might even be the false teachers, he says, go after them, but do it with, show them mercy, but with what? Fear. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have to be careful when you go to try to evangelize or, or call out a false teacher because they're the ones who are really good at deceit and using the enticement of sin to lead others astray. Okay, but he's saying, look, use wise care here. We've seen this in other parts of Scripture. You know, it says to use only, you know, in our communication, use only words that build up, right? Ephesians 4.29. But listen to what else it says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, right? But listen to this. As fits the occasion. For me to call you up at three in the morning and say, hey, I just think you're just the greatest person. Thank you so much, Jim, for being such a supportive elder and making me feel welcome at this church. Are those kind words? Yeah. Not at three in the morning. <laughs> we are supposed to, that's one that says, as fits the occasion. We need to be wise in how we care for people. 
right? And listen to this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, the lazy. Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. That means small soul. They're really discouraged. Encourage them. Help the weak, those who are physically weak, literally, and you need to help them. They just can't get on their weak and resources, weak physically. Help them. Be devoted is that what that word means. But the last verse is be patient with all of them. But you notice there's three categories of people there. But he says to do different things with them. So it's called wise care. But when we look at people who are led astray, we have to be wise in how we approach them. Some are just doubting. Well, we have to, how do we minister to them? Well, patiently, we get them into the word and we say, you're doubting, but let's, let's, let's talk about what you're doubting about. And is that the pastor's job, by the way? No, (laughs) it's not just my job. It's all of our job. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 is a great passage. Matter of fact, turn to Galatians 6, and we're going to read it together. This is how we deal with those who are led astray. As you're turning there, you have to understand Galatians 5, 17, and following is all about walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be walking in the Spirit, verses 22 through 24, are the fruits of the Spirit that are supposed to be coming out in your lives. And here's where I hate chapter divisions because chapter 6 makes it feel like he's gone on to a different subject. Paul has not gone to a different subject. He's talking about those who have fallen down in their walk. They're not walking anymore, and now you need to go help them get back up again. So listen to this, Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught, that word means ensnared, like they're caught in a trap. They, they, they can't walk. Okay? If, it, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sin, enslaving sin, you who are spiritual, meaning maturing in, in Christ, should restore him. That word restore, again, is the word I talked about. It means mending. Help them get mended. In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Why? Otherwise, you too might be tempted. That's that idea of, of, of going to show them mercy, but with fear. Bear one another's burdens. If somebody has got a, like they got caught in a trap, and they have a broken leg, and they have a cast on, but they don't have a crutch, and you have to help them walk, what do you do? They put their arm around you and help them walk for a while. That's the picture here. Bear one another's burdens. Again, this is the same topic walking through you. You've got someone who's trapped. Go try to help them, help them be restored, bear their burdens, help them for a while. And when you do this, what are you doing? It says you're fulfilling the law of Christ. So in this rescue operation, back to Jude, rescuing, we want to go after the doubting patiently, lovingly, show them the word. We want to rescue those who are, who are you know, They are deceived. They've been deceived. We want to show them the word patiently, lovingly. And then those who are actually the the ones who are the deceivers, the defiled ones, because they make all, we have to go be very careful to go to them. But it says for those who are spiritual, right, back to Galatians, meaning if you're a new believer, that is is something uh, an older believer should be doing. Okay? So we're, we're on a rescue mission, folks. You know, there's, there's a, a, a thing happening tomorrow at Thousand Oaks High School that uh, there, there's probably some waves. I've already seen some Facebook posts about it. There's um, a, a group who are coming, uh, who are going to picket in front of Thousand Oaks. And they, uh, Sean sent me their flyer of what they're going to say. Have you guys heard of the Westboro Baptist Church and what they do? They carry signs that God hates, I don't even want to say the word, but hates homosexuals, you know, using the F word, the... Um, and that, you know, they're going to hell, and, and what happened at Borderline? They brought it on themselves and deserved it. Folks, that's not how you rescue people. That's not how we do that. You know, this morning I preached on, you know, how are we supposed to give an answer for the hope we have? We're supposed to do it with what? Gentleness and respect. So th- this is stuff to keep in mind. A rescue operation is exactly that. It's supposed to be with the, with the compassion of Christ. Again, who are his his, uh, his, his the opponents that he went after the most were the self-righteous religious leaders, not the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax collectors. What was he known as? He was known as their friend, meaning he became friends with them. And that's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be. 
Then finally, again, this is actually, this last section is one of the great benedictions in Scripture. It's just an amazing benediction. But I want us to see that we can look at this in a way that we're supposed to rejoice in God's powerful and loving reign. Now to him, again, he's kind of shifting gears here, but I want us to see this. Now to him who is able to keep you, that word keep, guard, protect, to keep you from what? Stumbling. You're not, he, he can keep you from stumbling. He's the one who can keep you from falling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to do that. Do you believe that? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude's anthem of praise here at the end and where we must end up is going to our only hope, our only hope, our great God and our Savior. He's the one who can keep us. We're supposed to do our best to remain in the love of God, but the only way that we can and have that ability to is because of His power, His sovereign care over us as His beloved. That's why that title, Beloved, is so amazing means he loves us as his children. Uh, you don't know my children, but I love them. And I'd protect them from, if one of you wanted to attack them, I'd protect them. Because I love them. Parents, would you protect your kids from me? You'd better say yes. But, that, but that's what God, how he sees us. He, wants to, he will protect. Jesus says oh, to the Father, all those you've given me, no one has snatched out of my hand. He says, all who come to me, you, you will not cast out. Isn't that amazing? God, Jesus says that about us. We're his beloved. We rejoice because of his saving and sanctifying power. He's not just keeping us from stumbling. He's also able to present us blameless with great joy. Now, when we stand before God, are we truly blameless on our own merit? No. But since we are in Christ, we are clothed. We are covered by his righteousness. So when God sees us, he doesn't see us. Who does he see? Christ. Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We get that. He took our sins. We get his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Oh, my goodness. He got the raw end of the deal. But praise God, he did, right? He's pre- able to present us blameless because of his merit, and we have great joy because of that. We rejoice because of his sovereign power. This is, he is the one who deserves all praise, all of our, of our love and our thanksgiving because he is the worthy one. He has dominion. He has authority. He has power. He has glory. It's all to him from past time to now and forever. Amen? Amen. So, what's the so what of all this? Are you ready to spot fakes? That's a pretty simple one, Right? But with that comes, are you growing in the faith? Are you? Again, I'm not, I don't have to nod at me or anything like that. This is not me. I, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But we've got to challenge ourselves. Am I building myself up in the faith? Am I growing in God's word? Am I looking to grow beyond a sermon on Sunday? Am I praying? What's my prayer life like? I, that's, for me, that's really hard. I'm kind of hyper and kind of all over the place. And to slow down and pray, I don't do that often. I'm good at short little prayers. On my way here, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I just pray that I'm a blessing tonight. I'm a blessing to I had little prayers like that. But there's some of you who I call it the gift of faith. You are good prayers. See, messenger. You're going to kill me for saying that. But some of you are. And praise God for you. But all of us are supposed to be growing in that. Exercising that muscle, the prayer muscle, I've heard it said. Right? And, and, and how are you in helping and thinking about this body? And I'm a pastor, and I'm, so I'm a, one of the shepherds of this, of this church, so I'm very concerned about where you're at with your faith and, and not being you know, deceived. I don't want any of you to. I, I, it breaks my heart when I've seen people leave the church because they fell for some deceitful teaching. I've had to meet with people specifically and just pled with them not to do it because it breaks my heart. But, folks, it's not just a pastor's job. It's all of us. I mean, look, look at Matthew uh, 18. Where it says, if a, if a sheep has gone astray, what are we supposed to do? He's not talking to pastors there. He's talking to the church. If a sheep goes astray, what are you supposed to do? Oh, go find them. They're precious to God. 
So the, all these things are, I mean, I have, the outline has more, but I'll just leave it at that because we're way over time, I just saw. <laughs> so folks, I, I thank you for uh, our time in Jude together. Again, I tell you, it's, it's a privilege to preach it, but it's also a very, uh, it's very, uh, what am I trying to say? It's for my, my good too. I've enjoyed going through this, and I, and I pray that because of this, we would grow as a body, and that we would grow in, in not just saying, oh, here's what the word is, and we need to be ready for false teachers, but to grow in compassion for those who are deceived, a desire to see more, you know, grow in the faith, all right? Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the people here, and uh, Lord, for uh, just uh, our, our joy in going into your word to go before you, our God. And, and this, is, this is from Jude 2,000 years ago, but this is really from you. This is your word to us, and uh, Lord, I just thank you for the feast we've had in this short little letter and just the, the, the amazing amount of, of teaching that's in this. But Lord, I, I pray most of all that this would be a, a means to an end where you would continue to renew our minds. We, we, we have grown up in a culture that has uh, enculturated us to think a certain way. We have man's wisdom uh, all over us, and we just need your word to to help us to see differently, to see clearly, to see life and, and, and reality from your perspective, because yours is the only one that matters. So, Lord, I thank you for, for what this letter has done to my heart, and I pray that it would continue to work in my own heart, but also for each one of my brothers and sisters here. And, Lord, I, I pray that it would be to the end that we would be a church uh, both of, uh, of truth and grace. So I pray these things in Jesus' name.